Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Alim Mahabir, your host for this episode. We are grateful to be joined by Alejandro Portes and Ariel C. Armini. Alejandro Portes is Professor of Law and Distinguished Scholar of Arts and Sciences at the University of Miami. He is the Howard Harrison and Gabriel S. Beck Professor of Sociology Emeritus and a founding director of the Center for Migration and Development at Princeton University. Portes is also a member of the National Academy of Sciences and a former president of the American Sociological Association. His books include City on the Edge, The Transformation of Miami, and Immigrant America, A Portrait. Ariel C. Armini is Vice Chancellor for Global Affairs and Director of the University Center for International Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, where he is also a professor in the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs. He was a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, a Fulbright Scholar at Nankai University, and a resident fellow at the Rockefeller Foundation Bellagio Center. His publications include The Dubious Link, Civic Engagement and Democratization, and with Portes, The Global Edge, Miami in the 21st Century. A very, very warm welcome to the podcast, Alejandro and Ariel. Very happy to be talking to you today about emerging global cities, origin, structure, and significance. First off, um, is a question I ask everyone who talks with us on this podcast. Could you tell me a little bit more about yourselves? What experiences prompted you to write the book we're featuring today? Ariel? Well, um, I I am originally from Argentina. I have been living in in the United States um, since the early 1990s. And um, I have been um, a professor and a a university administrator in different universities. And so when I... um, went to the University of Miami, I had the great pleasure to meet Alejandro. And that's when we started talking about one specific project. And this was the idea that um, we we wanted to write an, a book about Miami. He had published a very, very influential book about Miami um, uh, years um, before that conversation, and uh, but Miami had changed dramatically since he had published that study. So we started talking about that, and that resulted in a book that uh, um, that we wrote. and uh, And the second part of that story, I will leave that to Alejandro on how that evolved into this book, and he can also tell us more about himself. <clears throat> Well, um, I am a prof- I am a retired professor at Princeton University, but still active at the University of Miami, where I also had the pleasure of meeting Professor Armoni, and we collaborated in various projects. I had the idea that Miami had changed enormously from the time of that I published my first book, City on the Edge, in 1992, and so we collaborated in writing the Global Edge, Miami in the 21st Century published by the University of California Press in 2018. But afterwards, uh, we discovered that the story of Miami and how its relative position in the world economy uh, was not unique. There were other cities in other parts of the world 
that had a similar profile. We researched that. Uh, Ariel has traveled all over the world in his in his position as vice provost for international studies at Pittsburgh, and he had met a number of people in a number of cities. Uh, and I have done my share of traveling, so that led to the idea of extending the analysis that we had pro that we have published in the Global Edge in 2018 to other emerging global cities that we could identify. There were not many, but they were important in their relative regions. So that is, this is a book, this is a book in urban studies and in urban sociology that tries to advance what we believe is a novel thesis. Well, the, the history behind it seems to go back a lot of years. Um, I've, I've read the book and I must say I've enjoyed it a lot as someone who is an urban scholar and urban geographer. Um, so with that being said, let's go into the meat of the matter, I suppose. What exactly do you mean by emerging global cities and how do you define them uh, you know, for the purposes of the book? Well, let me take that one first, and Ariel uh, can supplement it. We began this idea because there is an established notion in urban sociology and urban studies of global cities. These are cities that, in a sense, transcend their national location to become coordinate centers for coordination, investment, exchange of information on a global basis. We, oper we all live in an integrated global system, and that global system requires centers for coordination between decision makers, key players, and uh, in order to exchange information and make the decisions that affect us all. The cities that were traditionally identified since the publication of Saskia Sassen's book, The Global City, uh, as those that play that key role in the global system were New York, London and Tokyo. And for many years, that that was it. That was what we understood. The other cities played a regional, other roles, but the global cities that somehow transcended their national uh, location to be centers for coordination, economic, financial, uh, uh, cultural, uh, and intellectual were those three cities. What we came to discover is that there is there was room uh, in the world economy for uh, sent the cities, some selected cities that play a similar role at a regional level. They were not global in the sense that a New York is, but they they had a, a similar role as centers for coordination, exchange of information, meetings, and so on, and investments in their respective regions. And Miami was one, which is not as not has increasingly been referred to as the capital of the Americas because it plays that role through in vis-a-vis -vis the, the the Western Hemisphere and especially in reaction in in relation to Latin America and the Caribbean. And there are other we could identify two other cities and only two that play similar roles. That were that were those were Dubai, in the Middle East. Uh, playing a similar role as a center for trade, information, uh, investments, and so on, and Singapore in Southeast Asia uh, becoming a, a coordinating center for that region of the world. 
and basically the the, uh, the three cities share a number of attributes that we identified and actually we could not identify many any other city that would be similar in this profile as rising global in the present world world economy let me leave it at that and and, and ask Ariel to continue Yes, uh, uh, let me uh, expand uh, on on some of these ideas. Um, the emerging global cities that are the subject of our book uh, are located uh, geographically and financially at the edge of the world economy. And they have in common that they have left behind their industrial past or actually never had one, uh, nor are they centers of high technology innovation. And um, as Alejandro pointed out, and uh, expanding on that, instead, the pillars of their economies tend to imitate those of the established global cities that he mentioned. Banking and financial institutions, transportation and commerce on a world scale, construction and real estate speculation and tourism. And Another interesting aspect um, that uh, uh, we may have a chance to talk more later is that the class structure of these places is increasingly polarized between capital owners, managers, investors, and skilled professionals in a multiplicity of services and a semi-proletariat higher for low wages and on a temporary basis. And the national and ethnic origins of these groups vary significantly across these cities. Right. Um, So one of the themes that uh, uh, one of the sort of rhetoric he would have used in the book is, and he would have mentioned it just now, um, Alejandro and Ariel, is the idea of these cities being on the edge. Um, That's something I, I picked up on and to expand um, also the, the sort of um, topics you would have talked about in the book, you also talked about um, global hopefuls, um, cities that maybe are hoping to to reach that edge themselves. Could you talk more on this? Well, I think that uh, we have we explored the fact that in the present world, uh, many cities want to asp- uh, aspire to a similar role, or in a sense of being global, and they attempt to uh, advertise themselves and attract both fin- physical capital and human capital. By that, I mean the the presence of of very uh, uh, creative and highly trained personnel to themselves. Uh, so it's it's really a a global race uh, between um, not not individuals but between cities to to acquire a, this kind of profile, uh, but for reasons that we explain in the book, uh, it is difficult. It is difficult to to reach that that uh, that position of globality, and for example, you have enormous cities like. Uh, uh, like São Paulo in Brazil, uh, uh, like a number of Ind- Indian cities that are very large, but do not play a, a coordinating and central role in their respective regions. So it is not size 
here only that matters. There are other conditions that are, are important for a, a city to acquire this kind of visibility and, this, and attract to itself um, capital in the financial sense and also in the human sense. And that is the story of the book. That is, we analyze this, uh, what these conditions are. And on the second part of the book, largely authored by Ariel, uh, we uh, supplement the study of these emerging global cities to the figure that, that, that was coined there of global hopefuls. That is cities that at one point or another were poised to occupy the similar central position in the world economy, but for different reasons that are, that are tied to the fact that they did not meet uh, some of the conditions that we had uh, we had identified in in Miami, Dubai, and Singapore did not do so. So there are three or four of those cities that are analyzed in detail to provide a contrast to what had been the story of Miami, Singapore, and Dubai. So this is very interesting, um, and and let me uh, tell you a little bit more about this, uh, um, inserting also my my personal experiences. Thanks to my my role at the University of Pittsburgh as Vice Chancellor for Global Affairs, I get to travel worldwide. And in my conversations with leaders in city government, economic development agencies, businesses, universities, and nonprofits throughout the world, I've encountered striking similarities. These leaders, as Alejandro was saying, want to attract banks, corporations, investors, young professionals, and entrepreneurs from around the world. They want to brand their places, their cities, so that they acquire a global appeal, joining the top rank of global financial centers and and occupying a super regional position in the economy. So they participate in global networks, uh, bringing cities into conversation with each other. These interactions, uh, which I've observed firsthand in meetings held in Sao Paulo, Mumbai, uh, Nairobi, among other locations, really create mental maps of best cities that influence planning at the local level. And so as part of this global dynamic, cities aim to continuously reinvent themselves to acquire global status, seeking to implement lessons learned from other cities that represent successful successful variations of the global city model. And this is why we use the term global hopefuls that Alejandro defined, uh, and these cities that at one point or another were, were poised to attain positions of a global importance, but but failed to do so. And something that I want to highlight is that our intention is not to create vocabulary to expand the hierarchical ranking of cities, but to move past the hierarchy and analyze which phenomena create other kinds of global spaces and how they matter on a global stage. I'm glad you um, mentioned that last point on the sort of this um, creation of a hierarchical structure, a, a sort of um, hegemony. Um, I think um, it's something you would have brought up in this book. I'm wondering if you can speak more on how um, the discussion that you would have done in the book, how it sort of um, moves away from that hierarchical structure 
um, because um, many scholars would argue that um, the, the sort of discourse, um, it is often done to the detriment of other cities um, in the global south and sort of invisibilizes them. Um, care to comment on that? Well, as Ariel mentioned, uh, there had been a school of thought, uh, the school of, uh, of research based on ranking cities according to different metrics, their size, their investments, and so on. But these rankings uh, do not, uh, are, are, uh, are vacuous. They, are, um, they don't provide any kind of, uh, of, uh, of detailed information about what, what leads to cities occupying different roles in the world economy and what are the dynamics of it. I will give you, I will try to synthesize the conditions that, uh, that we find in the cities, that in the emerging global cities that are difficult to find elsewhere. One is a geographic position. The three of them, they generally are ports or located by the sea so that they can uh, create enormous ports for uh, commercial traffic that goes beyond themselves. And those three cities that we have identified do have those ports. Um, uh, Port Miami, Jebel Ali in Dubai, uh, and Singapore is an, uh, are enormous. The, but geographical situation is not enough because otherwise there would be many cities located by the coast. Uh, the other significant, the other two significant uh, uh, features that that are so characteristic of the cities first, the the pre- the the existence of a of a reliable legal judicial system for the protection of property so that both corporations and individuals interested in invest in investing and protecting their money be they by depositing in bank accounts or financial instruments or by investing in real estate have confidence that they will that their investments will not be lost or will not be will not decline in value because of the policies of a regime. Both all three cities have very stable legal judicial system that inspire confidence in the region, and that is why the well-to-do in the respect in their respective areas, escaping insecurity and instability in their own countries, tend to often put their money, be they in, in, in real estate or in banking investment, in these uh, three cities. And by the way, all three have enormous banking financial centers precisely to locate and house uh, these kinds of investments. And finally, I think that one what one finds in these cities is the presence of a charismatic leader with an iron will to um, or leaders to lead their city uh, to project it in the global uh, economy, even if they started from positions of of great inferiority and insignificance. One of the most telling uh, aspects of the story is that these three cities that are highlighted in this book were nowhere a quarter of a century ago. Nobody paid, that is, uh, Singapore was a collection of fishing villages in the South Pacific. Uh, Dubai was just sand and uh, desert and water, an insignificant emirate. 
in uh, in the Ritz in the in the uh, in the Persian Gulf, and Miami was just a winter uh, resort for the well-to-do in the Northeast, but had no other function. And yet, from those position, that very modest position, the activities of key actors in all three cities, plus the other characteristics that I mentioned, managed to catapult them into the situation of relative regional prominence in which they find themselves today. And I think that uh, uh, your your point um, uh, is is really really important in that in in the sense that the the stories told in this book show that in an age of uh, glorification of Silicon Valley, for example, and all with major engineering feats, it is possible to create innovative urban projects in the periphery at the age. Uh, the edge of the global economy. The cities we focused on, as we were explaining, uh, should not be measured against global cities like New York or London. They are a very different type of entity. And that's why we decided to you know, create these their own uh, nomenclature. And um, the other thing that is important to highlight is that These urban case case studies, emerging global cities and global hopefuls, remind us that the development of the 21st century city not only reflects the transformations of the capitalist system, but also the diverse impacts of a world of image. So these peripheral cities were not destined to achieve financial and commercial centrality, but they did. And This is a very, very important story to tell. I'm glad you touched on that point of image, Ariel, because it ties into another question I I wanted to ask. Um, Because we often see um, cultural products um, being really um, um, identifiable, you know, with a given city. For example, Nollywood, I think in in Lagos, Nigeria, Bollywood in India, um, cities in India, it, it contributes it, uh, uh, in many ways to the aspirations of becoming a, a global city. It sort of sends out this perception and this image in the minds of others uh, around the world. Um, so I'm, uh, why is that so important? Why is image so important? Um, maybe to, to gain that status of being a global city. So let me uh, uh, start with that and then Alejandro will, will continue. Um, the the branding of cities is absolutely central um, in our times. Um, you gave, you know, uh, some great examples in uh, the film industry and uh, something that uh, um, we discussed in the chapter on Lagos in Nigeria. Um, and uh, recently I, I published an opinion piece in the Miami Herald that talks about the recent deal um, with uh, Lionel Messi joining the Inter-Miami um, soccer team and, and talking about the two brands, the Messi brand and the Miami brand coming together. What does this mean? This means uh, that um, these cities, in addition to what we mentioned in terms of trade, Um, financial and banking services, real estate, 
also pay attention to cultural events, sports events, film, music, because this is absolutely central to projecting their image, their brands. Um, there are many examples, uh, for example, Art ba uh, Basel in Miami. Um, so this is why, for example, the, the Messi uh, phenomenon is so important and it's going to be hugely important for the image, for developing even further the image and brand of Miami. Uh, supplementing that, uh, the, the, the remarks by by Ariel on this, I mean, that is, we live in a competitive world in which increasingly, not only is this world increasingly interrelated, but that competition has been, that is, that used to be based on the production of things during the industrial era, so that the more industrial cities were of, often seen as the most prominent industrial locations and so on, have been substituted by the production of symbols. We live in a, in a, in a world in which the, the generation of ideas, of symbols and so on, is fundamental. And what these cities and so on have, have done is to, is to work in this, in, at the symbolic level of what they of what they reflect and how they are that's why for example the sheikh uh, the al the sheikh al maktoum in dubai uh, lost no time in building the the tallest building in the world the burj al khalifa precisely to call attention to what the, the city represents nobody lives in the that, that i know that lives in that in in that uh, in that building is not it is there to represent something it's a symbol of the aspirations and the importance uh, the importance of, that the city has and so certainly in miami from the soccer team to a number of other developments that have occurred the symbol the symbolic realm the, the is very important both in the sense of calling attention to this importance of the city and also attracting capital and attracting people who had, uh, Richard Florida calls the creative classes to themselves. Uh, there had been a significant migration to of highly skilled uh, a techno, techno, technological and professional personnel to these cities that drive, in a sense, their... Um, their initiatives and so on. But uh, by and large, uh, I would contrast this. That is, the of course, we live in a world of uh, in which we use things. Everybody has a, a, a everybody has a, a, an intelligent phone these days. You cannot live without it. And everybody has a television and a car and so on. But the places where these things, these physical things are produced are not necessarily the places that are central to the global economy because they, they, though the production of these things can be decentralized to places in the, in the global periphery. The, the, the important thing is where they are conceived, where are the ideas that go into the physical things that we use. That is, it is the ideas, including, for example, this podcast, and where it comes, somebody had to invent uh, this uh, uh, this symbol, this this way of 
or for, for people to interact symbolically. So by and large, cities that not only uh, try to brand themselves, but they try to brand themselves not through necessary things, but through symbols that that become a representative of their worth and become attractive to uh, for others to invest their money in and sometimes come to live in them. It's like it's almost like a, a soft power almost. I, I saw it as that, you know, with that um, intangible or abstract idea of a city um, bringing um, tangible things in place, like people moving there, like as you mentioned, the creative class, um, being able to attract not only people but also um, capital. And as you said, like everything is a symbol, everything is a, a brand these days. Um, but as you said that. Um, symbolic power symbols are also subject to change in terms of how people interpret um, them and uh, one uh, and you could see that with the example that you would have gave with Hong Kong in the symbolic power its power or uh, its status as a global city mentioned in the book um, has been in question due to changes in its geopolitical position. Could, um, could you tell me why you chose to focus on Hong Kong? Yeah, um, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Um, and I, I would, I would uh, ask um, Alejandro to take on, on the specific decision on Hong Kong, but let me frame that. And uh, if I may go beyond, you know, these symbolic dimension. Please um, do, yeah. If, if we think about, you know, the if you tell me, you know, um, going back uh, to the beginning, um, our book tells three stories. And so far, we've, we've talked about two of those stories. So we talked about the first of these stories, which focuses on the emergence and transformation of Miami, Dubai, and Singapore as emerging global cities. Second, we talked about the story of cities who... Uh, which have the resources to become thriving, prominent cities, but have not been yet able to reach a globalized position. And we study three cities, two contemporary stories, um, Sao Paulo and Lagos, and one story, the story of New Orleans, a city that in the past was destined to have this position. And this is what we call global hopefuls. Now, lastly, the third story is a story that goes beyond the symbolic dimension, and it's the story about what's happening in the changes of some cities and the future of these cities, both both emerging globals and global hopefuls, and how three dimensions, climate change, inequality, and politics, threaten the pillars on which the aspirations for global status of these cities stand. And in this context is where the example of Hong Kong is fascinating because, yes, it is symbolic, but at the same time, there are very, very concrete, very specific reasons why the status of Hong Kong is changing. I think that complementing that, uh, Hong Kong was already an emerging global city, much better consolidated than Singapore. 
uh, in terms of attracting capital and and skill uh, professionals and so on to itself for many years it was the the, the real regional center of uh, south uh, south asia and uh, this this uh, this role had been increasingly compromised by the chinese uh, the communist part, the chinese communist takeover of the city uh, because among other that is certainly that that communist takeover does not change the geographical location of Hong Kong. It is the same, but it does change the second condition that we were talking about. That is the question of safety and predictability of of corporate and individual investments. These days, what we we are seeing is an exodus of corporations, firms, individuals, and a very and a very limited inflow of new investments or new uh, new talent into Hong Kong. Why? Because this the relative uh, certainty provided by British law when Hong Kong was a British colony and so on has ceased to be. And uh, I would uh, and uh, people actually are both corporations and individuals are very aware that under uh, under Chinese communist rule or under communist rule anywhere in the world, this, the safety and certainty of their investments uh, uh, are can be changed from one day to the, another because of the political will of the of the leadership. And uh, that when that happens, I think that the status, the position of, of relative prominence of the city in the world is compromised, which is this, in a sense, the sad story uh, of Hong Kong. Uh, the last co- that is actually the last. The interesting thing is that the beneficiary of of the tragedy of Hong Kong in recent years have been largely Singapore because many of the cor- the corporations and the investments that were based in Hong Kong have moved there, uh, re- thereby reinforcing the role of Singapore as the regional global, as a global city in the region. It's, it's interesting that uh, the decline of one um, global city leads to the development of another. And, uh, Along with Singapore, um, what's also interesting uh, when you compare Singapore and Hong Kong is that there is um, a sort of parallel um, in terms of a, a sort of authoritarian uh, political le- leadership. Singapore is probably not on par with that, with that of China, um, um, definitely not. But there was extremely strong political will and powers exercised um, by the governing body of that city-state and under um, Lee Kuan Yew to, to bring about um, Singapore's um, tremendous um, development potential. I mean, the political will of um, um, chi- China's government as well, we've seen tremendous um, development in, in cities um, throughout China. What, what I'm wondering um given given that and i think alejandro mentioned also just how uh powerful political will and iron will can be um to develop in a global city you know is that um is is that worth it is that 
a model that um, maybe we, we should copy or other cities should mirror? Um, I, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on that. Well, I, I think that this is where we enter into a fascinating territory because um, we um, one thing that it's very clear for us in our study is that we don't say that any of the cities are models to pursue. We are very clear that uh, we identify the elements that, as Alejandro uh, very clearly uh, described that, the elements that led to the emergence of this particular type of global city. Uh, but we don't say this is the recipe that cities around the world should um, pursue. And one important element is that uh, there are important trade-offs in these cities when it comes to aspects such as democratic politics, um, the um, uh, respect for individual and civil rights. Um, so um, these are aspects that are very complicated about these cities. Um, one additional element that I find fascinating um, is that uh, Dubai uh, is um, promoting um, the idea of absolute complete surveillance of the entire city in order to make this city a city where there is absolutely no crime. So with the use of technology, um, facial recognition programs, uh, identification cameras, etc., etc. The idea that Dubai has is to monitor the entire city all the time. Well, some people may find that very appealing to live in, the city, in a city where there is no crime, but at the same time, of course, these racist issues about transparency, oversight for the way in which surveillance technologies are used and the potential for abuse and other elements. So what we are going to start seeing is that different people, different publics, different audiences, uh, different uh, groups of consumers are going to be looking for different models. And some people may choose um, the Dubai model and saying, I don't mind being in a city that is 100% surveilled by this technology because I appreciate the absolute lack of or non-existence of crime. And other people will say, I find this completely unacceptable. So it ranges from politics and the issue particularly of democratic politics all the way to these kind of examples about surveillance in the city. Well, we are, I guess that we are approaching the end of this uh, conversation and following what Ariel has said very well. I think that, uh, Alim, we actually... Uh, resisted the temptation of uh, of writing a cookbook, that is, of writing a book about how particular urban places could 
what they should do in order to rise up in the global economy, and and so on. We pre, we that is told the that is avoided that by noting that the stories of these three cities of how they rose to prominence in the last quarter of a century or so are very very different and depend on their part they particular characteristics of their histories that may not be reproducible anywhere. You cannot have another Sheikh Maktoum, you can may not have another uh, leader like, like Liu Kuan Yu, or you cannot have a, a, a class of exile bankers that led the way in, uh, in Miami, that those are uh, historical uh, contingencies rather than uh, than necessities. And the other part that we did uh, to avoid that is to point out to the fact that the recency of the rise of these cities also makes their relative status problematic because, as Ariel pointed out, there are a number of, da- of looming dangers precisely because they are not, they lack all of them lack certain elements. For example, Singapore is not a model democracy. It it builds itself as a democracy, but the ruling party never loses an election, and the, the ruler now is the, the, the son of, uh, of the founder. And, uh, of course, Dubai is not a democracy, it's an autocracy. It's a, uh, a led by a sheikh, and Miami had been very much influenced by, uh, by the politics of uh, the right-wing uh, uh, militants by the by the uh, by the Cuban exiles who were also in the self protagonists of the story of the race uh, of the race of this economic uh, rise of the city. So they are not in a sense shining models of uh, nice things that people that that. Um, that leaders would do in order to promote their cities. As Ariel said, I think that many people would prefer to live uh, in uh, in Chicago or Philadelphia or Paris than in Dubai, uh, despite the centrality of that, 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 that particular country in the Middle East. So it is our story is not a story uh, of necessarily only, only of celebration. Of course, there is elements of celebration in the remarkable rise to prominence of this trio of cities. But uh, I think that we have to be aware as serious analysts of urban processes that together with those merits and those achievements, there are a number of dangers and a number of problems that uh, that have to be taken into account for a full understanding of the characteristics of each of these rising Metropolis. I'm, I'm glad you, you didn't do a, a cookbook. I don't think I would have read that, but um, <laughs> I'm uh, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, you know, focusing or highlighting or encouraging one particular model it, or, or of how a city should be um, is definitely not something you you posit. Um, to, to the um, readers uh, of this book, um, but it's still it's just something I, I, I you know it crossed my mind that um, oftentimes people see um, these cities, they see the tremendous success um, that they've um, experienced, and I think uh, people are always looking to replicate um, 
that success and try to implement it where where they are where they are located oftentimes you know as you said the right conditions at the right place at the right time is so hard to achieve you're never going to have another league on you but people may still you know try so it's important to take those qualms um into mind you know well absolutely go ahead go ahead Aria. No, absolutely, and uh, this is something that uh, that that is 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 a reality, is a fact, and um, and and as I was saying earlier, um, I personally see that um, when I travel around the world, um, leaders uh, in cities and uh, business people, they are all looking for that particular recipe that will take their city to the next level. I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting phenomenon. The other aspect that I wanted to mention in relationship to this and also to the topic of uh, the challenges, future challenges for the cities that we really need to emphasize and we discuss in the book is climate change and mm -hmm. how climate change is an important factor in the future of these cities and that these cities are approaching climate change in different ways and uh, and that's another realm um, for you know future uh, lessons uh, because some of these cities uh, our three or cities, uh, um, some are doing interesting work in terms of addressing the challenges of climate change. And uh, in other cases, uh, we see a very problematic situation. So this is another aspect that is important. Climate change effects, uh, as we know, uh, are manifested in heat, uh, something that we are experiencing these months around the world sea level rise, climate refugees, ecolog ecological grief, changes in identity of cities. And so this is another very, very, very important topic that we need to consider when we think about the future of these cities. Well, on the positive side, I would say to con that is as a concluding note that we identified two things that are good things uh, in all in all three cities. One is the stability and predictability of their legal judicial system, that uh, that contrasts with what happens in in many parts of the world, especially in the global south, where regime changes leads to. Uh, confiscatory measures where people have no certainty about uh, about where their uh, economic uh, fate is going to come, whereas in this case, these these cities have uh, achieved the image of of guarantee of predictability that uh, that is so uh, very important. As one Argentine uh, respondent of ours in the earlier book said, every day I. I wake up and pick up the book and I give thanks to God that I don't live in my native country of Argentina and that the country and that the paper is not going to say that the currency had been devalued by 50% or that the the, the pro properties are subject to confiscation. The other one, the other characteristic that is a good thing by all, by all, by cities is the relative absence of corruption. Corruption kills institutions. Corruption is... When you have a corrupt government that is functionaries that are for sales and so on, you have you have no chance 
of rising anywhere uh, in the world. Corruption is what, in a sense, keeps many of the uh, poorer countries where they are and prevents them from becoming another Singapore or another Dubai. The, fun- the, 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 the institutional f- uh, apparatus of the, of the city and of the state have to, be, have to become immune uh, to corruption. That said, and following uh, what Ariel had mentioned before, we also see the dangers. And for example, in the case of climate change and rising sea levels, it will be interesting to see if the very efficient governmental apparatus that have, in a sense, a, a anchor and frame the economic and cultural rise of these cities would be would be up to the challenge that they are facing, in part because they are coastal, they are in low, often in low-lying areas, and they have to, they they are f- facing this, and it would be something for the future to investigate. We advance no predictions about that, but point out that this is one of the existential challenges that cities that have ri- ro- risen so fast uh, in the recent past will have to confront in the future. Well, that's a powerful note to end on. Um, unfortunately, we have to, uh, as we're up on time. Are there any other concluding thoughts that you'd like to leave us before we wrap up? I What I would say is that, um, um, as you can see, uh, there are really so many fascinating aspects of this, this story and uh, what I, I find to be very, very interesting in terms of the work that we've done is that um, it changes the script. Uh, as we have been saying, um, these are stories that um, had not been told before um, and, uh, and, and they force us to look at the world and to look at the global economy in a very different way, through a different lens, and uh, and and this is, uh, I find this uh, honestly really, really interesting. And uh, and every day uh, I see that uh, when we talk about this study, we find uh, new aspects to it. There are new dimensions. It's uh, very, very rich, and um, and we have been uh, presenting the book around the world, and um, uh, it's really rewarding uh, to see that uh, one can uh, be in Miami, uh, Pittsburgh, um, Kathmandu, and um, uh, many other cities around the world. These are just one, some of the places where we have recently presented the book, and we find audiences who are extremely interested in the argument that we develop. I have, I endure, I agree with that, and have really nothing, nothing uh, of greater significance to add. Thanks for the uh, in the interview, and I we hope that this this simply that this book will be will serve as a stimulus for new generations of scholars of uh, thinkers and so on to approach the issue of globality of uh, urbanization and cities in uh, in in our uh, in, cha- in changing but incre- but very interrelated uh, world 
thank you for that. Um, there's there's so many other questions I could ask, but I guess if you want to find out more listeners, you'll have to find the book. Um, which, by the way, where can they find the book and where can they find you if they need to, both of you? So the book uh, uh, has been Emerging Global Cities. Uh, um, is uh, has been published by Columbia University Press. So uh, it can be bought through their website and, of course, you know, through Amazon and other websites. It's uh, uh, very um, simple to access the book. Uh, and, of course, through a number of local libraries. Uh, and um, in order to reach out to us, um, uh, just um, Google us. Uh, I'm at the University of Pittsburgh, and so there it's very simple to find my contact information, and, uh, and the same with Alejandro. Okay, great. And last, last question um, is there an, are you hope sorry are you hoping to build on the ideas you explored in the book in any way is there any new material you have out and are currently working on that you would like to share at this time before we close out well we are going to that is we have we completed our analysis of this and uh, and like to see how 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 things develop from now we have no particular plans at present to do a sequels. We did a sequel on our book on Miami by doing identify the three global cities. And in my case, at least, I am hopeful that uh, uh, the ideas in the book and the, would be sufficiently provocative and important both for policymakers and scholars uh, to follow through. Uh, we did with more than a than a cookbook, more than a recipe for success. We actually are pointing out to the dangers, to the difficulties that 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 face this global city, this three, this trio of cities, as well as many others, uh, in terms of uh, climate change, uh, uh, and economic inequality. So these are challenges that are worth. Uh, studying and pursuing in the future, and we hope that those who come after us would uh, would uh, would take it up and and carry and extend the analysis that we have we have been able to provide. And I would like to add a final thought. Um, of course, we continue to engage academic audiences in this conversation, but um, now uh, we are mostly focused uh, on engaging with non-academic audiences, uh, that is, uh, talking to policymakers, um, to chambers of commerce, uh, different types of uh, private sector groups, non-profits. Uh, it's very, very interesting the kind of reception that we are finding when we discuss this argument in all different types of constituencies. And again, as I mentioned, uh, the an opinion piece, um, you know, on this Messi and Miami uh, New Deal, uh, we are also uh, through media um, reaching out wider audiences, uh, and people are really interested in uh, in these stories. Uh, so this is another. Um, 
a pretty, in, in some way, I don't know, I would say unexpected dimension of our work, uh, uh, published by a top university press. Um, you know, usually we think about an academic audience, but uh, the book, uh, the way in which it's written is very accessible. And, and again, we are finding that it's a compelling story. And, uh, and so very, very different types of groups and people are really interested in learning more about what we talk about in the book. Well, it, it's always great when, you know, the book um, sort of gets off the shelf and is actually, um, you know, uh, made into practice. So that, that's great news to hear. Well, I think um, we're at the end of the conversation. Uh, it was a fantastic uh, discussion, Alejandro and Ariel. Um, thank you so much. And if at any point in time there is a sequel or there's more work you'd like to share, I would love to have um, either both or either of you on. So I wish you all the best and goodbye. Goodbye. We will let you know. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you.